Chapter 3. Chapter 2. The History of Atlantis. The idea of evolution as a trickle of change producing humans out of animal ancestry has been extensively criticized and revised in modern times. Discoveries about our ancestors have shown that they were more human in some ways much earlier than was once assumed, yet lacked other features we take for granted in humanity until surprisingly late. Rudolf Steiner describes the quiet, different consciousness of early humanity. Rudolf Steiner describes the quite different consciousness of early humanity, the, the different physical forms which they took, and the eventual emergence of thought in its first stages. Still a challenge to the evolutionary thought of today. The story of human origins he uncovers also offers many striking lessons on the ecological crisis of the contemporary world. The earliest civilizations. Our Atlantean ancestors differed more from present day man than anyone would imagine whose knowledge is confined wholly to the world of the senses. This difference extended not only the external appearance, but also to spiritual faculties. Their knowledge, their technical skills, indeed their entire civilization differed from what we can observe today. If we go back to the first periods of Atlantean humanity, we find a mental capacity quite different from ours. Logical reason and the power of arithmetical combination on which everything rests that is produced today were totally absent among the first Atlanteans. On the other hand, they had a highly developed memory. This memory was one of their most prominent mental faculties. For example, Atlanteans did not calculate as we do by learning certain rules which they then applied. A multiplication table was something totally unknown in Atlantean times. Nobody impressed upon their mind that three times four is 12. In the event that they had to perform such a calculation, they could do so because they remembered identical or similar situations. They remembered how it had been on previous occasions. It has to be understood that each time a new faculty develops in an organism, an old faculty loses power and acuteness. People of today are superior to the Atlanteans in logical reasoning, in the ability to combine. On the other hand, memory has deteriorated. Nowadays, people think in concepts. The Atlanteans thought in images. When an image appears in their soul, they remembered a great many similar images which they had already experienced. They directed their judgment accordingly. For this reason, all teaching at that time was different from what it became later. It was not calculated to furnish children with rules, to sharpen their reason. Instead, life was presented to them in vivid images so that later they could remember as much as possible 
when they had to act under particular conditions. When the children had grown up and had gone out into life, they could remember something similar which had been presented to them in the course of their education for everything they had to do. They could manage best when the new situation was similar to the one they had already seen. Under totally new conditions, the Atlanteans had to rely on experiment. Much has been spared modern human beings in this respect due to the fact that they are equipped with rules which they can easily apply in any new situation. The Atlantean system of education gave a uniformity to all of life. Over long periods of time, things were repeated as they had always been done. The Atlanteans' faithful memory did not always, did, did not allow anything to develop that was even remotely similar to the rapidity of progress as we experience it today. One did what one had always seen before. One did not invent, one remembered. It was not the person who had learned much, but rather the person who had experienced much and therefore, therefore could remember much, who was considered to be an authority. In the Atlantean period, it would have been impossible for someone to decide an important matter before reaching a certain age. One had confidence only in a person who could look back upon long experience. What has been said here was not true of the initiates and their schools. For they were in advance of the stage to which their age had developed. The decisive factor for admission into such schools was not age, but whether in their previous incarnations, applicants had acquired the faculties for receiving higher wisdom. The confidence placed in the initiates and their representatives during the Atlantean period was not based on the richness of their personal experience, but rather on the antiquity of their wisdom. With initiates, personality ceases to have any importance. They are totally in the service of external wisdom. Therefore, the features which characterize a particular period do not apply to them. While the power to think logically was absent among Atlanteans, especially the earlier ones, they possessed something in their highly developed memory which gave a spe special character to everything they did. Other powers are always connected with the essential character of any given human power. Memory is more closely linked to the deeper foundation of man in nature than is reason. And in this context, other powers were developed which were more closely connected to those of the subordinate beings of nature than our contemporary human powers. Thus, the Atlanteans could control what we call the life force. I will repeat that. While the power to think logically was absent among the Atlanteans, especially the earlier ones, they possessed something in their highly developed memory, which gave a, spe a, a special character to everything they did. Other powers are always connected with the essential character of any given human power. Memory is more closely linked to the deeper foundation of man in nature than is reason. And in this context, other powers were developed, which were more closely connected to those of the subordinate beings of nature 
than our contemporary human powers. Thus, the Atlanteans could control what we call the life force. In the same way that today we extract the energy of heat from coal and transform it into motive power for our means of transport. The Atlanteans knew how to put the germinal energy of organisms into the service of their technology. One can form an idea of this if we look at it in the following way. Think of seed grain. Energy lies dormant in it. This energy causes stock to sprout from the kernel. Nature can awaken this energy which, which reposes in the seed. Modern human beings cannot do it at will. They must bury the seed in the ground and leave its awakening to the forces of nature. Atlanteans could do something else. They knew how to change the energy of a pile of grain into technological power. Just as modern human beings can change the heat energy of a pile of coal into such power. Plants were cultivated in the Atlantean period, not merely for use as foodstuff, but also in order to make the energies dormant in them available to commerce and industry. Just as we have methods of transforming the energy dormant in coal into energy of motion in our steam engines, so the Atlanteans had devices which they fueled, in a manner of speaking, with plant seeds and in which the life force was transformed into technologically utilizable power. The vehicles of the Atlanteans, which floated a short distance above the ground, were moved in this way. These vehicles traveled at a height lower than that of a mountain range of the Atlantean period, and they had steering mechanisms by the air of which they could rise above these mountain ranges. One must imagine that with the passage of time, all conditions on Earth have changed very much. Today, the above-mentioned vehicles of the Atlanteans would be totally useless. Their usefulness depended on the fact that at that time, the cover of air which enveloped the earth was much denser than it is now. Whether in the face of current scientific beliefs one can easily imagine such greater density of air need not occupy us here. By their very nature, science and logical thinking can never decide what is possible or impossible. Their only function is to explain what has been ascertained by experience and observation. The above-mentioned density of air is as much a certainty for esoteric experience as any present-day fact given by the senses can be. Equally certain, however, is the fact, perhaps even more inexplicable for contemporary physics and chemistry, that at the time, the water on the whole Earth was much thinner than today. Because of this thinness, the water could be directed by the germal energy used by the Atlanteans into technical services, which today are impossible. As a result of the increased density of water, it has become impossible to move and to direct it in such ingenious ways as once were possible. From this it must be sufficiently clear that the civilization of the Atlantean period was radically different from ours. It will also be understood that the physical nature of an Atlantean was quite different from that of a contemporary person. 
An Atlantean took into himself water, which would be used by the life force inherent in his own body in a manner quite different from what is possible in today's physical body. It was due to this that the Atlantean could consciously employ his physical powers in an entirely different way from a person today. He had, so to speak, the means to increase the physical powers in himself when he needed them for what he was doing. In order to have an accurate conception of the Atlanteans, one must know that their ideas of fatigue and the depletion of forces were quite different from those of present-day man. An Atlantean settlement, as must be evident from everything we have described, had a character which in no way resembles that of a modern city. In such a settlement, everything was, on the contrary, still in alliance with nature. It is no more than a vaguely similar picture if we say that in the first Atlantean period, about the middle of the third sub-race, a settlement resembled a garden in which the houses were built of trees with artfully intertwined branches. What the work of human hands created at that time grew out of nature, and people themselves felt wholly related to nature. Hence, their social sense also was quite different from that of today. After all, nature is common to all human beings. What the Atlanteans built up on the basis of nature they considered to be common property. Just as people today think it only natural to consider as their private property what, they in, what their ingenuity and intelligence has created for them, anyone who familiarizes themselves with the idea that the Atlanteans were equipped with, with such spiritual and physical powers as have been described We'll also understand that in still earlier times, mankind presented a picture which will remind them in only a few particulars of what they are accustomed to see today. Not only human beings, but also surrounding nature has changed enormously in the course of time. Plant and animal forms have become different. All of nature has been subjected to transformation. Once inhabited regions of the earth have been destroyed, others have come into existence. The ancestors of the Atlanteans lived in a region which has disappeared, the main part of which lay south of present-day Asia. In theosophical writings, they are called the Lemurians. After they had passed through the various stages of development, the greatest part of them declined. They became stunted, and their descendants still inhabit certain parts of the earth today as so-called savage tribes. But a small section of Lemuria, Lemurian humanity was capable of further development. From this part, the Atlanteans were formed. Later, something similar again took place. The greatest part of the Atlantean population declined, and from a small portion, the so-called Indo-Europeans descended, who belonged to present-day civilized humanity. According to the nomenclature of the science of the spirit, the Lemurians, Atlanteans, and Indo-Europeans are root races of mankind. If one 
imagines that two such root races preceded the Lemurians and that two will succeed the Indo-Europeans in the future, one obtains a total seven. <laughs> one always arises from the other in the manner just indicated with respect to the Lemurians, the Atlanteans, and Indo-Europeans. Each root race has physical and mental characteristics which are different from those of the preceding one. While, for example, the Atlanteans especially develop memory and everything connected with it, at the present time, it is the task of the Indo-Europeans to develop the faculty of thought and all that belongs to it. Various stages must also be passed through in each root race. There are always seven of these. In the beginning of a period associated with a root race, its principal characteristics are in a youthful condition. Slowly they attain maturity and finally enter a decline. The population of a root race is thus divided into seven sub-races, but one must not imagine that one sub-race immediately disappears when a new one develops. Each one may maintain itself for a long time while others are developing alongside it. Thus, there are always populations which show different stages of development living together on Earth. The first sub-race of the Atlantean development from a very advanced part of the Lemurians who had a high evolutionary potential. The faculty of memory appeared only in its rudiments among the Lemurians, and then only in the last period of their development. We must imagine that while Lemurians could form ideas of what they were experiencing, they could not preserve these ideas. They immediately forgot what they had represented to themselves but that they nevertheless lived in a certain civilization that, for example, they had tools, erected buildings, and so forth, was owed not to their own powers of conception, but to a mental force within them, which was, for want of a better word, instinctive. However, one must not imagine this to have been the present-day instinct of animals, but one of a different kind. Theosophical writings call the first sub-race of the Atlanteans the Remorhals, spelled R-M, O-A-H-A-L-S. So theosophical writings call the first sub-race of the Atlanteans, the Ramohals. The memory of this race was primarily directed towards vivid sense impressions. Vivid sense impressions colors which the eye had seen, sounds which the ear had heard, had a long after effect in the soul. This was expressed in the fact that the Rumahals developed feelings which their Lemurian ancestors did not yet know. For example, 
The attachment to past experience was a part of these feelings. The development of memory was connected with that of language. As long as human beings did not per preserve the past, there could be no communication through the medium of language of what had been experienced. The appearance of first beginnings of memory in the final Lemurian period meant that it was also possible for the faculty of giving a name to what had been seen and heard to have its inception. Only human beings who have the faculty of recollection can make use of a name which has been given to something. The Atlantean period, therefore, is the one in which the development of language took place. With language, a bond was established between the human soul and the things outside the human being. People produced sound words inside themselves. And these sound words belong to the objects of the external world. A new bond is formed also among human beings by communication through the medium of language. It is true that all this existed in a still youthful form among the Romahals, but nonetheless, it distinguished them profoundly from their Lemurian forefathers. The sole powers of these first Atlanteans still possessed something of the forces of nature. These people were more closely related to the beings of nature which surrounded them than were their successors. Their soul powers were more connected with forces of nature than are those of modern human beings. Thus, the sound word which they produced had something of the power of nature. They not only named things, but their words contained a power over things and also over their fellow human beings. The word of the Romahals not only had meaning, but also power. The magic power of words is something which was far truer for them than it is for people today. When a Romahals person pronounced a word, this word developed a power similar to that of the object it designated. Because of this, words at that time were curative. They could advance the growth of plants, tame the rage of animals, and perform other similar functions. All this progressively decreased in force among the later sub-races of the Atlanteans. One could say that the original fullness of power was gradually lost. The Romahals felt this plentitude of power to be a gift of mighty nature, and the, their rulership to the latter had a religious character. For them, language was something especially sacred. The misuse of certain sounds, which, possess, which possessed an important power, was an impossibility. They felt that such misuse could cause them enormous harm. The good magic of such words would have changed into its opposite. 
something that would have brought blessing if used properly would bring ruin to the author if used criminally. In a kind of innocence of feeling, the Rumahals ascribed their power not so much to themselves as the divine nature acting within them. This changed among the second subrace, the so-called Tlavatli peoples, Tlavatli, that's spelled T-L-A-V-A-T-L-I, Tlavatli peoples. The people of this race began to develop a sense of their own personal value, ambition, a quality unknown to the Rumahals, made itself felt among them. Memory, in a certain sense, became part of their conception of the nature of communal life. A person who could look back upon certain deeds he had performed demanded recognition of them from his fellow human beings. Such a person would demand that his works be preserved in memory. Based upon this memory of deeds, groups of people belonging together would elect one person from amongst themselves as leader a kind of royal rank developed. Such recognition was even preserved beyond death. The memory, the remembrance of the ancestors or of those who had acquired merit in life developed. From this emerged among some tribes a kind of religious veneration of the deceased, a cult of ancestor worship. This cult continued into much later times and took the most varied forms. Among the Rumahals, it was still the case that a person was esteemed only to to the degree which he commanded respect at a given moment through his powers. If someone among them wanted recognition for what he had done in earlier days, He had to demonstrate by new deeds that he still possessed his old power. He had to recall the old works to memory by means of new ones. What had been done was not recognized for its own sake. Only the second sub-race considered the personal character of a person to the point where it took his past life into account in the evaluation of his character. A further consequence of memory for the communal life of human beings was the fact that groups were formed which were held together by the remembrance of common deeds. Previously, The formation of groups depended wholly upon natural forces, upon common descent. Human beings did not add anything through their own mind to what nature had made of them. Now, a powerful personality would recruit a number of people for a joint undertaking and the memory of this joint action formed a social group. This kind of social communal life became fully developed only among the third sub-race, the Toltecs. It was therefore the people of this race who first founded what can be called a community, the first method of forming a state. The leadership, the government of these communities was transmitted from one generation to the next. The father now passed on to the son 
what previously survived only in the memory of contemporaries. The deeds of the ancestors were not to be forgotten by their whole line of descent. What an ancestor had done was honored in his descendants. However, one must realize that in those times, people actually had the power to transmute their gifts to their descendants. Education, after all, was calculated to mold life through vivid images. The effectiveness of this education had its foundation in the personal power which emanated from the educator. He did not sharpen the power of thought, but developed those gifts which were of a more instinctive kind. Through such a system of education, the capacities of the father were in most cases transmitted to the son. Under such circumstances, personal experience acquired more and more importance among the third sub-race. When one group of human beings separated from another, it took along for the foundation of a new community the remembrance of what it had experienced at the place of its previous existence. But at the same time, there was something in this memory which the group did not find suitable for itself, with which it did not feel at ease. Therefore, it then tried something new. Thus, conditions improved every time that such a new community was established. It was only natural that what was better should be imitated. These are the facts which explain the development of the flourishing communities in the period of the third sub-race described in theosophical literature. These acquired person, personal experiences were supported by those who were initiated into the eternal laws of spiritual development. Powerful rulers themselves were initiated so that personal ability might have full support. Through their personal abilities, human beings slowly prepared themselves for initiation. The first had to develop their powers from the bottom up in order that enlightenment from above could be given to them. In this way, the initiated kings and leaders of the Atlanteans were created. Enormous power lay in their hands, and they were greatly venerated. But this circumstance also contained the cause for decline and decay. The development of memory led to the preeminent power of personality. Human beings wanted to count for something through their power. The greater their power became, the more they wanted to exploit it for themselves. The ambition which had developed turned into manifest selfishness. Thus, the misuse of these powers arose. When one considers the capabilities of the Atlanteans resulting from their mastery of the life force, one will understand that such misuse inevitably had enormous consequences. Wide-ranging power over nature could be put at the service of personal egotism. This was accomplished in full measure by the fourth sub-race, the first Turanians, T-U-R-A. N-I-A-N-S, Turanians. The members of this race who were instructed in the mastery of the powers described above often used them in order to satisfy their selfish wishes and desires. But used in such a manner 
these powers destroy each other in their reciprocal efforts, effects. It is as if the feet were stubbornly to carry a man forward while his torso wanted to go backwards. Such a destructive effect could only be halted through the development of a higher faculty in human beings. Let me repeat that. Such a destructive effect could only be halted through the development of a higher faculty in human beings. This was the faculty of thought. Logical thinking has a restraining effect on selfish personal desire. The beginnings of thought. The origin of logical thinking must be thought among the fifth sub-race, the original Semites. Human beings began to go beyond a mere remembrance of past and to compare different experiences. The faculty of judgment developed. Wishes and appetites were regulated in accordance with this faculty of judgment. People began to calculate, to combine. People learned to work with thoughts. If previously people had abandoned themselves to every desire, now they first asked whether their thinking could approve this desire. While the people of the fourth sub-race rushed wildly towards the satisfaction of their desires, those of the fifth began to listen to an inner voice. This inner voice restrains the desires, although it cannot destroy the claims of the selfish personality. Thus, the fifth sub-race transferred the impulses for action to within the human being. Human beings wished to come to terms with themselves as to what they should or should not do. But the benefit which occurred inwardly with respect to the faculty of thought was lost with respect to the control of external natural forces. For such combinatorial thinking can master only the forces of the mineral world, not the life force. Let me repeat that. Thus, the fifth sub-race transferred the impulses for action to within the human being. Human beings wished to come to terms with themselves as to what they should or should not do. But the benefit which occurred inwardly with respect to the faculty of thought was lost with respect to the control of external natural forces. For such combinatorial thinking can only can master only the forces of the mineral world, not the life force. The fifth sub-race therefore developed through thought at the expense of control of the life force. But it was precisely in this way that it produced the germ which would allow the onward development of humankind. Now, personality, self-love, even complete selfishness could grow freely. For thought alone, which works wholly within and can no longer give direct orders to nature, is not capable of producing such devastating effects as the previously misused powers. From this fifth sub-race, the most gifted part was selected 
which survived the decline of the fourth root race and formed the germs of the fifth, the Indo-European peoples, whose mission is the complete development of the faculty of thinking. The people of the sixth subrace, the Acadians, Acadians, spelled A-K-K-A-D-I-A-N-S, Acadians, developed the faculty of thought even further than the fifth. They differed from the so-called original Semites in that they employed their faculty in a more comprehensive sense than the former. It has been said that while the development of the faculty of thought prevented the claims of the selfish personality from having the same devastating effects as among the earlier races, these claims were not dis destroyed by it. The original Semites at first arranged their personal circumstances as their faculty of thought directed. Intelligence took place, took the place of mere appetite and desires. The conditions of life changed. It proceeded, if preceding races were inclined to acknowledge as leader one who deeds, whose deeds had impressed themselves deeply upon their memory, or who could look back upon a life of rich memories, this role was now conferred upon the intelligent. If previously that which lived in clear remembrance was decisive, one now regarded as best what was most convincing in thought. Under the influence of memory, one formally held fast to a thing until it was found to be inadequate. And in such a case, it was quite natural that the person who was in a position to remedy a want could introduce an innovation. But as a result of the faculty of thought, a fondness for innovations and changes developed. Each person wanted to put into effect what his intelligence suggested to him. Turbulent conditions therefore began to prevail under the fifth sub-race. And in the sixth, this led to a feeling that the obdurate thinking of the individual needed to be made subjective to general laws. The splendor of the communities of the third sub-race was based on the fact that common memories brought about order and harmony. In the sixth, this order had to be brought about by thought-out laws. Thus, it is in the sixth sub-race that one must look for the origin of the regulation of the justice and law. During the third sub-race, the separation of a group took place only when it was forced out of its community. So to speak, because it no longer felt at ease in the conditions prevailing as a result of memory. In the sixth, this was considerably different. The calculating faculty of thinking sought to the new as such. It promoted enterprises and the establishment of something new. The Acadians were therefore an enterprising people with an inclination to colonization. It was commerce, especially, which nourished the waxing faculty of thought and judgment. Among the seventh subrace, the Mongols, the faculty of thought also developed, but characteristics 
of the earlier sub-races, especially of the fourth, remained present in them to a much higher degree than in the fifth and sixth. They remained faithful to the feeling for memory, and thus they reached the conclusion that what is oldest is also what is most sensible and can best defend itself against the faculty of thought. It is true that they lost the mastery over the life force, but what developed in them as the faculty of thinking nevertheless possessed something of the natural might of this life force. Indeed, they had lost the power over life, but they never lost their direct, naive faith in it. This force had become their God, one whose behalf they did everything they considered right. Thus, they appeared to neighboring peoples as if possessed by this secret force and they surrendered themselves to it in blind trust. Their descendants in Asia and in some parts of Europe manifested and still manifest much of this quality. The faculty of thought planted in human beings could only attain its full value in relation to human development when it received a new impetus in the fifth root race. The fourth root race, after all, could only put this faculty at the service of that to which it was educated through the gift of memory. The fifth alone reached life conditions for which the proper tool is the ability to think. And that concludes chapter two.